I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, everybody. Mind Rolling Podcast is back with David Silver and Raghu Marcus and a special guest, Ian Lawton. And you guys are going to love this this story that Ian is bringing to us about the original uh, first white Irishman, white anybody, but from Ireland, who made it eventually to Burma and became the first ordained Buddhist monk. And uh, he uh, has a fantastic story, which he tells us, and uh, he's going to make a film about it. And he, it's, it's, it's very, very poignant, as you'll hear in the end. Uh, so we're quite happy to, uh, to share this with everybody, Dave. Oh, yeah, he's great. But we do want to quickly remind all of you that this is a... a a listener-supported podcast, and uh, we need... Uh, there are several ways in which you can support us. One is by listening to us and talking to people and being excited about it, of course, uh, but also by using our our association, our affiliation with Amazon and using our portal and bookmarking our Amazon portal. And whenever you have a desire to buy something, uh, which we all seem to be doing with Amazon these days, uh, remember us and do it through our portal because we get a, a small amount of it and it helps us tremendously. We also uh, have our own sales, T-shirts, etc., and that's going to grow exponentially. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's it. We're going to have a, a whole incredible array of T-shirts, not just for mind-rolling, but for the whole 
uh, MindPod Network, which we've been telling you about, which you have been coming and sharing because we are seeing uh, just pretty substantial numbers coming to the website because that website is beyond just uh, linking up and subscribing to iTunes to either Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Krishna Das, Mind Rolling, or Ram Das here and now. It also has really a, a, a beautiful array of different articles and uh, videos and audios of uh, both esoteric and uh, um, timely um, topics that uh, are really fun to dig into. So that's been happening, and, I th- and I'm glad it's uh, attracting everybody because it's certainly attractive to us because we share what it is that we love, and that's what this whole thing is about, the MindPod Network. So uh, appreciate that and appreciate... Um, the uh, the feedback and the comments and Dave does a lot of going back and forth with people, and because he can write a decent letter, whereas uh, I can't say the same for myself. Uh, and uh, but um, you know the other thing, Dave, we always do. We always have a little bit of a recommendation, um, and uh, for for the Amazon things because that's where you know people you go on and on and on and uh, you know we need to do this everybody and. We know sometimes it's a little bit um, of a bore, and we figure that the best way to do it is actually recommend some good stuff. Uh, so actually, this particular book, go up and get it, The White Llama. It's Theos Bernard, T-H-E-O-S Bernard. It's an incredible book, uh, which is a Biography, Travel, and Adventure, A History of Tibet's Opening to the West. And it's The White Llama. The Life of Tantric Yogi, Theos Bernard, uh, Tibet's Lost Emissary to the West. So this is, uh, you, you would appreciate this. And um, Dave, have you heard about the, the, the lost, uh, the, the Dylan, they found some Dylan's yeah. lyrics and they got Jim James and Marcus Mumford and a bunch of people together. Elvis, Elvis Costello. And Elvis, yeah. Uh, did you hear any of that? I've seen it. Uh, oh, he on, was on Showtime, yeah. Yeah, I've seen What's it. What's it called? Uh, I don't... It, well, Basement Tapes is in the yeah, title. Yeah, Basement Tapes. Yeah, The Lost Basement Tapes. I think it's, that's it's it. It's really quite beautifully shot, actually. And T-Bone Burnett is responsible for producing this. And he's just one of those people that is is just, you know, always excellent. Yeah, I mean, quality, break. quality, quality. Check that out. But i got to tell you, there's one song, and I don't know the name of it, but Jim James. It is so... Perfectly emblematic of Dylan in in those days, though, in, mm. in the early. He even sounds slightly like Dylan, but mm. the melody he came up with, alongside of Dylan's words in this thing, are just it's worth the price of admission to this record. So everybody, uh, go up there and uh, get that up on Amazon. I have and, two two recaps, which okay. is uh, I've gone back to drinking the chai that uh, you have. Is, yes, I have, and it's um. It's cardamom chai uh, and uh, there's masala chai. Uh, it's available on Amazon. And for those of you, and I'm sure there's quite a few of you, who love chai uh, in the morning and at other times, this is the most authentic sort of instant yeah. version of it that, that, that you can find here. And it's on Amazon. I highly recommend it because uh, Raghu and um, many others 
are very picky about this because you've, once you've had the real stuff, what they call chai in, in, in um, Starbucks and so forth is a pale imitation. And actually, it's annoying to me. I usually get kind of pissed <laughs> off when I drink it because it doesn't taste anything like the real thing. This isn't, you know, totally authentic, but you can make it so by adding a little milk and a little um, breakfast tea. It's terrific. English like breakfast. Chai. Irish. Irish breakfast. Irish breakfast. Yeah, right. absolutely. And, uh, it's called Nature's Guru, folks. So, uh, and uh, they should they should sponsor us so we wouldn't have to harangue you all. Really, I actually got in touch with them, and, and they said, what do you want? And I told them, and I never heard another word from them. And we have a Which substantial art, uh, audience here. Yeah, we're pushing their chime. Nothing comes back. Yes, but that's but uncon- we'd like it, so that's screw it. Unconditional love, right? That's yeah, a- unconditional love for... The other thing I wanted to recommend was some years ago, many years ago, 20 years ago, I did some work with Mickey Hart, who is uh, was the second drummer for Grateful Dead and is still performing with the sort of collective that is now the other and will be the Grateful Dead for a night or two soon. And uh, Mickey produced an album uh, called the um, Tantric Choir, which is the Giotto Monks. And um, it's just so marvelous. I listened to it last night for probably the 150th time. God knows why. Uh, try and get it. It's, it's just terrific. It's on Amazon. And Mickey did something no one else had ever done that f- thus far, which was to record this multi-tonal Tibetan chanting and playing uh, in perfect stereo and surround sound, and it just grabs you on headsets. You you are put into a different world and a better one. So I recommend that record very much. Record is that a word that people use anymore? That's uh, for old, old dudes like uh, still <laughs> like a download unit. Although How vinyl is like way back. I mean, vinyl is a happening thing. You know, there's yeah. more. There's an increase in the sales of vinyl. Over any other format, of course, it's still only a couple. Does of Amazon percent. sell vinyl? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, okay. yes. All right, well, that's that's our harangue. Can we? I just love uh, Mr. Cockney. Uh, if we could, could you have him just say? Oh well, let me let me just get him. <laughs> could you call him over here for a second? All right, and well, those of you who are tired of Russell Brand and all of that sort of communist stuff he's spouting, uh, you know, just keep mind rolling because I don't know, I haven't met these guys, I never met them because, you know, they're never in London, but I hear they're very nice guys, a little cranky sometimes, but then that's typical of, you know, their era. <laughs> so uh, knuckle down, make a donation and and be high-spirited about the whole thing because they're high most of the time. <laughs> Uh, here we go with uh, Ian Lawton and uh, the Dharma Bum. Another sunny day in paradise with mind rollers. And today is a special day because we get to talk to somebody uh, from over the pond, as they say, Ian Lawton. And Ian is from Ireland, one of my favorite places in the world. Absolutely love it. Actually, David and I uh, went over to Ireland a couple of times and uh, worked on some music stuff when we were uh, in the record business. Remember that, Dave? I loved it. We were in Dublin and uh, and on the outskirts of Dublin uh, with two amazing people, actually. Uh, Emer Kenny, uh, a singer, a terrific singer, and her husband, John, and they were so gracious. But it, I'd never been, you know, I'm from England, but I'd never been to Ireland. 
And just that small time there was, was, was just great. It was just full of, I don't know, precious moments. Zest for life. Is is that right? That's the way we would say it. So, hi, Ian. How are you doing, guys? Pleasure to be here. And a great pleasure to have you. Tell us where you are in Ireland, by the way. I'm in in County Meath in the Midlands of Ireland. And uh, the sun has set and the snow is falling. Mm. And uh, enjoying a a nice-looking evening out there. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. So... Uh, actually, let's tell everybody the, a little bit about the circumstances about how we met would be would sure. be great. You uh, first of all, you why? How did you even find Ramdas? And uh, that's obviously how we met, right? Was it through Ramdas or is it through mind rolling? I can't remember. It was it was through mind rolling. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I, um, I was. Um, well, I'm currently um, working on a. A film right now, and uh, I've been doing uh, a lot of sort of PR and press, and reaching out to to the big, the wider community, and uh, and I out of the blue one day I got an email from yourself, Raghu, um, uh, and you wished to talk to me about the film I'm making, mm. and we had it. We had a quick chat in December, and you decided we should have this podcast. So. I'm delighted to be here to talk about the film because I think it's uh, certainly a story I, I, I'm dying to tell and let the world know about. And particularly the fact that I'm I'm crowdfunding it, um, this is this is going to be great exposure mm. to to the U, to the United States. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just delighted to be here talking about it. Well, it's a subject close to our hearts, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, primarily spreading dharma, sharing which is mm-hmm. what this podcast is all about. So, uh, you know, we're absolutely thrilled to have you on to, to talk Thank about you. it and uh, tell the story and so on. Uh, but just a little bit about you personally, though. Okay. Just coming up, uh, you know, as a young man in, in Ireland and getting... I mean, how do you even get interested in uh, Buddhist thought and so on and so forth? How did I get interested in Buddhist yeah, just, thought? Uh, what are um, there, you know, we always ask, we always have guests on. Sure, uh, sure. One of the no, first I, things I'm, we I'm do is, is, is just say, tell us what the transformative experiences that you've had that uh, led you to uh, any sort of a path. And uh, okay. so, yeah, go ahead. Let us know. Sure. Well, well, okay. Well, go, going way back um, to, to my childhood, I guess, um, I was a big fan of the Beach Boys and the Beatles and their music, and um, you know I had I had older uncles and my father was a big he'd always play the Beach Boys in in, in the car and stuff, and that kind of introduced me to um, to transcendental meditation. Um, there was a lot of talk about that, particularly when the, the George Harrison and, mm. and Lennon went off uh, to meet with the Maharaji and stuff like that. And I found all that very, very fascinating. But I was just a child. I didn't, you know, it didn't really, it, just, it was just entering my head, basically. Um, I was becoming aware of it and were aware of something special somewhere. And um, so... In my 20s, I discovered there was a sort of a transcendental meditation place near where I lived. But um, I was kind of dubious about it because they charged 
a hell of a lot of money to to learn how to do this. And I thought, um, you know, I, I could never afford to do it. <laughs> so, so um, let's see. The, the the path I'm on right now kind of happened when when I quit alcohol. I quit drinking. Hmm. And and that I easy felt in Ireland, eh? <laughs> that easy in Ireland, no. But um, I, I, when I, I, to be honest, when I quit alcohol after a few months, I felt alive, and I felt that I'd spent my life as a as a drinker dead. And I, I felt like I opened my uh, opened my mind more. Um, and I, any time I had tried to do any kind of mindfulness for passing the meditation as a drinker, it never stuck. I never had the patience for it. I never, you know, it never really. I never really benefited from it. Um, but once my kind of mind relaxed and I got detoxed, I guess, from years and years of, of drinking alcohol, um, I really took to meditation. And the first time I did it as a non-drinker um, made me decide and make the commitment to to do it every day. Hmm. Um, and... Of course, I've kind of a, I've a very kind of scientific mind, so mm. I always try to find out the the source of these things and and sort sort of work my way back, and um, and it brought me back to Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and what he did under the the Bodhi tree, and 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 I, I thought, my God, have I, have I accidentally become a Buddhist? Because, <laughs> uh, but. Um, it's been, it's been, I've been on retreats since then and I've learned more how to, in, you know, um, just practice the, the Vipassana on a daily basis, sometimes twice a day if I can. And I've been doing that for a couple of years now. Mm. And uh, I, I don't think I have any kind of right to call myself a Buddhist, but I certainly practice Buddhism. Um, I know that the important things are the sort of the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Where I live, there is no Sangha. Mm. It's, it's a, it's a, what I'm kind of, I guess, what I'm doing and where I'm living, in the middle of Catholic Ireland. There's, there's, there's no Sangha. So, until I find the opportunity to join a Sangha, I don't think I could have any claim to call myself a Buddhist. Well, I'm not sure about that, but there's a funny. <laughs> just this comes to my mind because David and I have been working on something. With mm -hmm. uh, Ramdas and Sharon Salzberg, it's a, a retreat that uh, was in uh, Maui last year that we're David's been editing into a, a, a beautiful program. Uh, Dave, tell that story because you just uh, told me no. you just inserted that great thing about Buddha yeah, and the Buddha. Someone wrote to Ramdas and and had had some problems with his parents because he he sort of become interested in in the Buddha, and mm -hmm. uh, what was said, which was kind of um, redemptive, was. Uh, you know, don't be a Buddhist, but be a Buddha. And, you know, that isn't just sophistry, I don't think. It, it, it really does sort of say what we're all three of us here are sort of involved with, I think, which is that, you know, I don't, I haven't taken refuge as such, you know, and all of that. And um, I do go to an occasional Buddhist meditation and so forth. But I get it myself um, from reading all, Buddhism is just full of the most amazing literature and books. It is, yeah. Right from the original sutras through to all the tulkus and lamas and rinpoches and then Western commentators that have written just brilliant books that appeal. I'm an avid reader, you know, and mm -hmm. I just find it incredibly um, helpful. 
I mean, that's just the most simple word. It helps me get through my day, every day. Mm -hmm. And there are other disciplines that Raghu is involved with and I'm involved with, but I keep coming back to Buddhist thought, even though the word thought is a little unfashionable in spiritual circles, you know, let's not be intellectual, let's be spiritual, but it is thought, it's, it's matter about the mind. And um, I would imagine, um, Ian, that sort of a similar thing applies to the situation that you're in, uh, in Ireland, surrounded by papists. <laughs> uh, well, what I, what, I, what I love about Buddhism is its simplicity and the, the sort of the difficult part I guess is putting it into practice mm -hmm. you know and, and that's, that's what I find challenging about it because it's kind of it's, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person who doesn't suffer fools gladly so it's always very, very kind of challenging to find the compassion and you know, but it's like I said, it's a, it like, you know, as you know, it's a practice. And if unless you do it every day and and, and I make a point of, of practicing metta um, at least once a week, that was something I learned on retreat. And I think it was it was Nietzsche who pointed mm -hmm. out that uh, Buddhism can become very narcissistic. And mm -hmm. I kind of was beginning to feel that kind of being very detached. And until I learned the benefit of uh, metta meditation, um, I, I, to be honest, I was, I'm a very skeptical person. I've been atheist all my life. Um, so anything that is, is sort of kind of prairie, I kind of shy away from, you know what I mean? So uh, until I actually started physically practicing meta, I, it, blew my, it blew my mind. It absolutely mm. blew my mind, the benefit of that. And I really make sure to, 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 make, to include that in part of my practice mm. at least once a week. Because it's 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 it really improves how 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 you how you how you are really I think. Mm. Uh, you know, it's very interesting because we were led uh, in the early days when we were in India uh, with our guru Neem Karoli Baba. We were led. He didn't teach anything, so he didn't say go learn vipassana or anything. But we found ourselves in the beginning. A few of us, uh, including Ramdas in Bodh Gaya and starting to do these uh, uh, Vipassana courses. And then many of us, in fact, most of us uh, who were there at that time, really uh, were introduced to Vipassana meditation. So it was some formative uh, instruction for us that was extremely important. And in fact, the people that we were close to at that time have become some of the great uh, Buddhist uh, teachers in this country uh, and uh, Jack Kornfield and uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg are three very, very close people to our family. And it's, it's interesting because it, it, it combined with it, what you're saying and what you're experiencing right now is yeah. exactly what we experienced back then or what we experience right now as well. But what we first bumped into back then was getting this kind of backbone uh, meditative uh, practice combined with the bhakti path. And you could say uh, metta is not something one would call the bhakti path, but it certainly is developing love and opening your heart uh, to expand into eventually you know, all those around you and so on and so forth. And uh, we, we spend a lot of time with meta practice because Sharon uh, 
does participate in these retreats. I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff we have on ramdas.org, but you can see her teaching uh, metta, and uh, that, that's become an important uh, part of these retreats. So that combination of, of, uh, of this very, very solid practice, and I don't know, maybe Ian, you and I have talked about this uh, when we first talked about, uh, but I don't quite remember that you were this um, involved with Vipassana, and, and it, it is also something really close to my heart, and it's also something I do day to day. And the combination of the two, I think, is uh, super, super important because it can be very Absolutely. easy in Buddhism because Bo- especially for me, the Tibetans, they are so crystal clear about uh, the nature of reality and how this all works. It's very enticing, and you can, you know, and I'm, we're going to get some mail, Dave, around this from the Buddhists, but it would seem to be to me, and uh, I have myself been caught in, in this, this kind of crystal clarity of feeling like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, okay, I know this. And, of course, there's no knowing in the mind of anything when it comes to the reality of nature. Uh, so uh, the, the uh, combination of, of the heart practice alongside of this, and this is something Dave and I talk about in my mind-rolling uh, podcast from quite often and quite regularly, is the marriage of these two things seems to be something quite important to, to become uh, an evolved human being, where yes. you are not... As you say, it's the possibilities of narcissism seem to be grand uh, along this path or any path, but in particular because of the clarity of the path. Uh, that uh, the inclusion of meta practice in this case is uh, it's a great point and something great to share with with everybody out there. So yeah, it's essential, I think. Yeah. So next thing that happens in life, your life, is that you bump into a story about a monk. And so I think we want you to uh, just relate, you know, how did that happen? How did you bump into this story of this monk and and, uh, uh, regale us with this story, Ian? Sure. Um, Well, like I was saying earlier, I'm I'm, I'm in a small town in the Midlands of Ireland and... uh, I think one evening I was I was just searching for any information about Buddhism in Ireland, and uh, just to, to because it seems to be in small little pockets here and there, mostly in bigger cities in Dublin, which, which is where I'm from. I'm 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 only out of Dublin uh, four years, um, but it was it was yeah. So I was just doing some research just for my own for my own benefit and. Uh, I think the Google search was Ireland Buddhism, something like that, mm. which led me to um, an article on the BBC website and um, on on history and religion. And the headline said something like uh, the lost Irish monk Udamaloka. And I just began began reading the article um, out of curiosity, and my hair started to stand on end uh, reading about this man. Um, I started to see his life in front of me. It was just, it was, it igni- it ignited something in me, this, this story. And uh, before I even finished the article, I had opened up my email window and had started composing 
uh, an email to one of the re head researchers, uh, Brian. Um, I didn't know what I had discovered. I didn't know. All I knew was that this story shouldn't, shouldn't be hidden away. I thought, why am I, you know, 40 odd years of age and only finding out about this guy now? This should be this guy should be a household name. He should be up there with Oscar Wilde or Michael Collins or any other mm. sort of staple of Irish history. But the fact is, is that he was erased from his, not just Irish history, but all history um, and was only discovered um, in 2009. And the first evidence, uh, compiled evidence, the interdisciplinary journal that the three researchers uh, composed was um released in an issue of contemporary Buddhism in November 2010. So he's 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 still obscure. And I, I want to do something about that mm. by making this movie. Mm. So well, tell us a little about who he is and when he was and where he was. Okay, well he was um he was born um he was born Lawrence Carroll in the year 1856 in a small town called Booterstown in the county of Dublin. Um, he was the son of the local greengrocer, and uh, his house was, he was actually born right next door to the local Catholic church. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just listening to your dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So he was born right next door to the local Catholic church. Um, I, I don't know if that was any kind of alarm bells for future uh, activity, but uh, it's just a fact to bear in mind. Um, also, at this point as well, um, the, Ireland was 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 a colony of of Britain. It was part of uh, the colonialist colonialist rule. Um, I just want to preface this, uh, um, David. <laughs> I know you're of English descent, so um, I am not anti-British or not anti-English. I'm just going to tell the facts as they are because I'm going to say quite a lot of negative things about British colonies uh, <laughs> from Ireland all the way down to Southeast Asia. <laughs> so apologies in advance. <laughs> we'll give you right. a chance. I'm sure I have the same critique, actually. Oh, no, I thought we'd give you a chance for a, uh, a reply on behalf of the, uh, the monarchy, okay? No, you're getting on. Yeah. <laughs> Go on in. Okay, so he was, he was in Buddhistown, which is very near Dunleary, which is a port, a port town in, in Dublin. Um, he made his way over to Liverpool, where he was working on the docks, roughly around 17, 18 years of age. Um, I don't know if it was, whether it was in, in Ireland where he got a taste for the bottle or over working with English, uh, the Liverpool dockers, where he got a taste for the bottle, but he became an alcoholic very quickly. Um, being the son of a greengrocer, he managed to get a uh, a job on the ship's pantry. He he didn't really get any jobs as a docker, but on a ship's pantry, he went from Liverpool all the way to New York City, and uh, took the big journey, mm. and ended up in in the New World. Um, we're talking now, eighteen sixties thereabouts. So um, so there's there's a roughly twenty six years of his life that was spent in the United States that really. Um, we don't know what went on, but we do know that he did travel as a hobo, um, you know, living hand to mouth, basically being a, being a bum and um, working his way bit by, bit by bit as a hobo, jumping trains, getting making his way across the USA. Um, again, using his his sort of knowledge of shipping, he worked the the fruit ships going up and down the Sacramento River. Um, he ended up then in San Francisco, where he worked the shipping route to Japan. 
And uh, the story goes that on the third trip, returning from Japan, he was kicked off the boat and left on the beach because he was too drunk to work. He was drunk and disorderly. They got rid of him and left him on the beach in Japan and sailed off back to San Francisco, leaving him there, you know, drunk and hungover and homeless on the on the beach in Japan. Um, Ian, so, where, let me just ask, yeah. where where are they getting any of these facts around his life? Just you know, just like going up and down the Sacramento River, going on the boat. Where are they? Do, do they say where they're finding this stuff? It's interesting. There's a lot of a lot of stuff is 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 accounted for um, uh, by by Lawrence's own word, by firsthand meetings that he where he met people on his travels, and they wrote about him. And there might be a couple of pages here and a couple of pages there in different publications. And these guys, the three professors who I really, really want to talk about, they've put together, you know, like detective work to put together the, the, this man's life story. Yeah. But just these little needles and haystacks of publications all around. And the thing was, he was traveling at a time where there was no passports. He was changing his name left, right and center. There's, you know, he was born Lawrence Carroll, but he also went by the name Larry O'Rourke. Uh, William Colvin was another one of his names. Then there's Udamaloka, obviously his his ordained name. But we'll get to that anyway. But he, he, the thing is, he was left on the beach uh, in, in Japan. He made his way down through China, all the way down through Southeast Asia, um, working as a tally clerk, things like that. But basically beachcombing, um, just, you know, being a bum, um, ended up in Burma. And uh, the story goes that he was he was taken in by local Buddhist monks and dried out, um, and obviously this had a profound effect on on Larry. And um, after five years studying as a novice, um, in I think it was June of the year nineteen hundred, he was ordained as a full blown Buddhist monk and was the first white man to do so which is mm. quite a discovery you know he this guy predates uh many of the 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 monks who were who are you know generally known to have been the first buddhist monks like uh, alan bennett uh from england um was was one of the ones and i think it's 20 years prior to this that this this guy was was first ordained but that's just the beginning of the story really because um because it's not just the fact that he became a monk, it's what he did as a monk that makes him, you know, gives him this legendary status, really. Um, whereas other monks at the time would, you know, disappear into a monastery and just meditate. And this guy was, he was an activist, pretty much an anarchist. He he obviously came from Ireland, uh, who was under British colonialist rule. Um, at the time, Burma uh, was about 10, maybe 15 years uh, of, of currently of being in the process of, of colonization by the British, they were sending in um, missionaries, sending in colonists, and he was vehemently opposed to the Bible, the bottle, and the Gatling gun. They were his his main points of, of, you know. So where where to next? Um, I mean, there's 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 plenty of stories I can tell you of what he did to as, as a monk. Um, um, I think the first uh, this was nineteen. It was 1900 he was ordained, and I think in 1901 he published an advert in the local Burmese newspaper, um, proclaiming himself, proclaiming himself the Bishop of Angoon. He was 
you know, <laughs> he had an audacity about him. He proclaimed himself the Bishop of Rangoon and forbade the British to be <laughs> to 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 um, to distribute any Christian literature or any anything related to the Bible to to the local people and forbade it and uh, said this I command you not to do this so he was really a fly in the ointment of of the invading British um where to go next um so he he I, I can I read something to you oh yeah absolutely. something to, there, it's, yeah. there's um this is um I'll just show it up to the camera obviously nobody who's listening can Ooh, see this this is the copy Buddhism. of contemporary Buddhism which is the interdisciplinary journal that um was was written and released in in November two thousand and ten, by um, the three written by the three professors who who I'll actually will I tell you a little bit about them before I read this? Sure. Okay, their their names are Alicia Turner, Lawrence Cox, and Brian Bocking. Um, a little story about them is that Lawrence Cox, he's a professor here in um, in Maynooth, the Irish College in Maynooth, um, University of Ireland, I should say, and. Um, he was doing some research. He's a sociology professor. He he was he was writing a book called Buddhism in Ireland, and um, I think he found a newspaper clipping from the Irish Independent, uh, dated I think um, early nineteen hundreds, talking about the Irish pongi. Um, when he read it, he thought it was made up. He thought it was pure fiction, and. Pardon me. Um, because of the list of jobs that this man had, um, as you know, Tally Clark, um, Beachcomber, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so he did a little bit of research and and found actual physical evidence of the man's existence. So this confirmed that he was indeed a real, actual person. Um, um, as as a monk, he he started up a, a tract society. Tracts are like uh, circulars, like newsletters, mm. like fanzines that he, were distributed to the people for free. Um, he he um, formed one called the Buddhist Tract Society uh, very early uh, after his ordination. And uh, an envelope was found addressed to an address in Canada. So it was physical evidence I've actually seen and held the envelope it's uh mm. you know it's actual physical evidence that the the Buddhist track society existed so this man existed etc um so yeah these these three people um, I think it was Alicia Turner who's in York University in Toronto um she had found another evidence of of, of a happening some in, in the United States and then Brian Bocking a professor of religions in University College Cork in Southern Ireland, realized that the two, these two, quite independently of each other, were talking, had made these discoveries and realized that they were talking about the same person. And uh, he put them together. And since then, the three of them have, have been working exclusively almost uh, in trying to push, put this man's life together um, and finding all these little needles in haystacks all over the place. Um, so I've I've kind of jumped around a little bit there now. What, what's their commitment? Uh, I mean, their commitment to this is pretty strong because they've really researched this. Sure. Where are they they're, coming from? What's their end game? They're yeah. they're public. They're publishing a book on the life of Damaloka. Oh, they are. They're, yeah, they're they're currently working on that, and it should be out sometime later in on this year. I I think. Um, so my 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 film that I'm I'm going to be making will be. Um, in-depth interviews uh, with these three, with these three people, and also um, in-depth interviews with their assistants and whoever else I can I can talk to. Um, 
in that regard. Um, where to go next? Well, you let, let's hear... So said, Ian, I, that which I found very interesting, actually, was that sure. you were going to do animation mm -hmm. in the film, which I've always thought was a, a clear good way for for documentaries to spruce themselves up a little bit because, you know, documentaries yeah, yeah. are great, but we have so many of them in our lives now that it, there's too many talking heads. It can be a bit of a drone. Exactly. But exactly. if you can actually recreate the life, obviously there's no film or even photographs. None, none. And that's, so that's that the impetus be behind the the animation for sure. Yeah. Because there's only one one photograph of the man that in existence. There's no, no footage of him whatsoever. Um, so animation really is... I don't want to... I don't want to stage reenactments with, no. with actors and, and yeah. I think think this would be a more, you know, beautiful and respectful way to bring the man back to life as as an animated character. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I'm I'm a former animator. I started my career as an animator, and and two D traditional two D hand drawn animation is a dying art. So I really want to I really want to make something of worth that includes some beautiful hand-drawn mm. animation also. And I think this this project really lends lends itself to that mm. uh, because of its epic scope, because of the, the amount of story that needs to be told and certain certain um, certain uh, stories and aspects of his life I really want to to recreate in animation. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful way of telling a story. I mean, I, I, if anyone had seen the, the Cosmos show with Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. that was a really beautiful way of uh, a really good device in, in storytelling device and it, it kept you really engaged I think mm. it's, it's a really great way of storytelling um, some stories give us some stories his stories sure because I sure, remember yeah. being um, transfixed when you told me them that would be amazing <laughs> um, yeah well, actually I'll read that paragraph oh, that yeah. I, was, I was going to read um, let me just find this this is one of like, I had fallen in love with this character and uh, it was when I found this paragraph, pardon me, I'm flicking through pages right now. When I found this particular paragraph, it just really concreted in my mind that I had made the right decision into in making this film. My apologies now. Can you bear with me just for one more second? Mm. I should have bookmarked it properly. No problem. Here we go. Now, this was published in 1900. Um in in the Burmese newspaper, and the, you know this. I'll ju I'll just read it because th this is the words of Damaloka right now that you're going to be hearing. It's called "Warning to Buddhists." Buddhists of Burma, be warned in good time. Do your duty. The Christian belief is slowly making way. It has Europe, a strong, powerful. Or it has in Europe a strong and powerful organization. It is backed up by gigantic hordes of money. It works secretly and stealthily. It appeals forcibly to the self-interest and cupidity of men. One missionary society in South India has spent during the last year on average 10,000 rupees for every single convert. No wonder that it has been able to make 1,000 converts. Buddhists laugh and sneer when they are told that Christianity is progressing. If, when Christian missionaries are prepared to spend annually at the rate of 10,000 rupees for every single convert, they can only make... 1,000 converts. How, they ask, can there be any danger, near or remote, to our religion and society? But this is so underrated. The pernicuri strength of our adversary, 
Christian missionary societies are so enormously rich that they can afford to spend a good deal more. Therein lies our danger. Christianity as a system of religion is sorry stuff. Unbelief is steadily gaining ground in Europe. Look at the lawlessness in the Church of England at the present time. No wonder. The other day, three Christian bishops came together at Manchester and openly confessed how the advance of science it was making it impossible to continue to believe in many of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. As science advances, belief in Christianity is fading in Europe. Christianity spreads in this country not because it has any intrinsic worth, for science has shown it has none, but because its missionaries are backed up by the power of the purse. Of our own great religion, a European scientist has said, Buddhism is perfectly compatible with science. Christianity is diametrically opposed to it. Science, though made... Science, though, has made its way in spite of Christianity, and it is by... And it, and it is by means of scientific thought that Christianity is ultimately destined to perish. <laughs> it is perishing in Europe, but money makes it thrive there. While our own scientific gospel... Buddhism is daily being robbed of its votaries. Buddhists of Burma reflect well on our dangers. Can you see sacrilegious hands deface or destroy our holy inheritance? The star-like Buddhas are calling upon you to proclaim from the housetop and hillside, from meadow to valley, the sacred gospel which we have entrusted to you. Will you show yourselves worthy of the trust? We have slept long enough. Shall we not at least, with great and grave danger looming before us in all its huge and hideous proportions shake off our lethargy. Buddhists of Burma, rise then and gird up your loins for the coming struggle. May the blessed Lord Buddha guide your efforts, prosper them and crown them with, re and crown them with reward. Wow. Jeez, if that was put out now, it would be uh, a problem. <laughs> it could have been written last week. Nobody really girds up their loins anymore, but yeah. certainly <laughs> that could have been written last week. Really? I mean, that's a serious call to arms right there. Yeah, yeah. So he was, he was not only became a Buddhist, but understood that, um, the, you know, I mean, from the time of the Inquisition onwards, that mm -hmm. uh, Christianity was an aggression, an aggression in some ways. And uh, even though we, I don't want to sound like a Pollyannish idiot here, but obviously Christianity as, you know, spread throughout, imperialism, colonialism, is not what uh, the, the Nazarene was really talking about, ever. And so, uh, you know, uh, his, his, you know, complete, complete denunciation of the Christian church in Europe is a political statement about the politicization of a, of a, of a, of a path. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's, but what's so interesting is that he was doing it in Burma, uh, you know, and the British were 100 there. A hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised they didn't grab him and put him in a jail somewhere in, in uh, you know, Manchester. <laughs> well, he was, he was arrested. He uh -huh. was arrested a number of times. He was on trial for sedition. He did, he did many, many things uh, in, in his sort of, his one-man reign of terror, if you like, against the, the British, British colonialists for a period of, uh, of 10 years, up until around 1911, where, where it sort of, evidence of his existence kind of dissipates there. He also faked his own death as well, which is probably as a result of, of the police surveillance he was under while he traveled through Sri Lanka and Ceylon and Australia. Um, he just, he just, I, he, I think he, he ended up faking his own death because of the constant police surveillance he was under.
because of the the threat he posed. I mean, there's rumours that he he ended up uh, being a Catholic priest, which I think is absolute rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds unlikely uh, to me, you know, based on that tract you just read. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's just it's it's hilarious to think that he would end up in in that in that position. But. but what the, the when he was first arrested was was uh, what I call Shoegate, and uh, this was a, a situation in in uh, in the Schwedagon Pagoda in 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 Rangoon, hmm. um, which is now called uh, Yangon in in Burma. Um, the Schwedagon Pagoda is a temple, a sacred ground. It's it's said to contain like three or four hairs of of Siddhartha Gautama in in the temple. So obviously, no shoes are allowed in in this in this sacred ground. Um, and there was one instance where, um, sorry, there was there's it, it, the the police there were immune from this uh, this law. Um, they could wear shoes there while on duty, but he confronted an off duty police officer wearing his shoes, and 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 stood up to him and insisted that he he remove his shoes uh, while there. Um, the the police officer saying I'm I'm a police officer I can't do it no you're off duty so you're not a police officer right now get the shoes off, um, and he was arrested for that. Um, so I mean there's a lot of I'm probably not selling that very well but there's a lot of admirable things like that that he he took it upon himself as as he wouldn't sit down and let it let it happen he he had righteous indignation you know he really stood up for for what he believed in and and I really admire him for doing things like that. Hmm. Absolutely. Activist Buddhism is something that's an unknown quantity for most mm. people. He's certainly an engaged Buddhist if ever there was one. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Did he speak the language? Fluently? Um well there's 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 I I do know when he did, went on preaching tours that he did speak in English with an interpreter that was probably easier for him. But there was there's this amazing book uh, called the uh, the vagabond va- the vagabond adventures around the world, which was written by an American man called um, Henry Frank, who on his travels around the world bumped into Damaloka on at the height of his sort of popularity. He um, he was uh, he was on a train in northern India, and uh, a lot of a lot of information comes from this first hand account, where he sat with him. Um, and shared curry out of his alms bowl on on a steamer ship um, going down the river Ganges, where while on that ship he witnessed a a, a Hindi handing out um, uh, Christian literature, and of course Damaloka took the thing, handed it back, and there's this wonderful confrontation between the two of them where they debated, and a lot of people who were on board gathered round to witness this uh, debate of this this white monk because he was a real celebrity because obviously there wasn't many white people out there wearing the saffron robes of of a Buddhist monk, so um, he he got a lot of attention uh, as a result. Um, so there was this amazing exchange uh, between these two. I mean, there's only nine pages, nine or ten pages, where he meets Damaloka in this book. But um, and and he's he the the writer Henry Frank, he writes it in in the similar way that uh, that Irvin Welsh would write Scottish. He would write it phonetically. Mm. So um, so you can when you read it, you really hear the sort of the Irish accent and and this yeah. vernacular. It's beautiful. Um, Da Buddha, you know, <laughs> he would say. Um, so, so there was this brilliant exchange where he's, he's, you know, 
handing back the literature to to the Christian uh, Hindi, and they have this debate, and the the Hindi was losing the debate and started insisting he didn't speak English anymore and started speaking in Hindi. Mm -hmm. And then that's when Damaloka just started speaking fluent Hindi to him uh, to continue on the debate, uh, much to the enjoyment of the the, the crowd that had assembled. So there's there's wonderful things like uh, like that that really show off the, the power of his personality mm. and the kind of the celebrity status that he had. I mean, when he went on preaching tours, uh, he would almost deliberately um, pick um, towns where where the British missionaries were um, to sort of steal them of their audience, if you like, um, because he would he would and this probably was one of the reasons why he was tried for sedition, whereas he would steal the audience, he would gather people and get them all riled up. Uh, you know, he was just very, very outspoken and a very good public speaker and very, you know, popular. And, and the cool thing is, um, in, in, in sort of crowdfunding this, camp, this film, um, I have a Facebook page, uh, which is numbered roughly around 300 likes at the minute, and over 90% of those likes are all from Myanmar. Really? So that hmm. is, I find that fascinating to, to think that this man is still known as popular in the country that, that became his home. Wow. As, as he was then, you know. Oh, that's amazing. What, what did, is there any record of what kind of talks that he gave, his teachings? Or are, are they around? Uh, I mean, because we're, what we're hearing is obviously activism, Buddhist activism and, hmm. uh, and really, uh, contrariness towards the British Empire and everything they represent, which would have been natural for any Irishman of that era or any yeah. era. Uh, <laughs> but uh, is is there was there another component to what he represented as a monk? Um, I think um, I mean there's there's a lot of stuff that I I don't know. Like when I was speaking to you in December, I did say that there's a lot of aspects of of this story where I keep trying to deliberately keep myself ignorant because of the the interviews and the in-depth interviews I want to conduct with the three professors um so so I might be a little vague in in, in some of those uh, in the, in those answers I, I I'm sure there probably is record of his of, of his preaching um but I do know that um in his publications uh, for the Buddhist Tract Society he would um he would he would write about himself in the third person a lot um, signing his name, Captain Captain Daylight, and uh, Captain who? Captain Daylight. Daylight. Captain Daylight. It was one of his pseudonyms. <laughs> it was his pen name um, when he would write about <laughs> the that. exploits and the adventures of Damaloka. <laughs> you know, he had some. He had some neck. The 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 origin of that is is going back to his days in Ireland. Um, during the the British rule of Ireland, there was a sort of a Fenian band of rebels who would um, write letters to landlords when saying they would refuse to pay rent for people that were going to kick out. Um, they were called the Bukali Bona in Gaelic, which translated as the White Boys, and they would sign their uh, they would sign their um, the letters to landlords, British landlords, um, Captain Captain Moonlight. So. Mm -hmm. It was a play. It was a play on that, an homage, I guess, to those guys. So he was very much influenced by, by sort of activists and rebels and people like that. Um, 
I'm sure going because he was such a good organizer. There's talk of 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 his time in the in the U.S. He must have been part of many kind of Woody Guthrie style trade unions, etc., where they're you know sticking up for for their cause and their beliefs. Um, so I think he he definitely did get an education while in the states. That sort of fueled his 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 you know he wasn't just a a crazy ex alcoholic Irishman he also had the ability to uh, to organize and publish and get tracts out there he, I mean he'd re republish um, the works of the likes of Thomas Paine and you know atheist authors like that and free thinkers he was very much into you know you do not want to be bogged down by these these the, by dogma you need really need to think for yourselves and open mm. your minds and you know he really fought for that cause. Amazing. Amazing. It is. It's so compelling, this. I mean, the film has to be made. One of the things... And, about, uh, and, and are you surprised that he was erased from history? Hmm. Not at all. I mean... I'm, you this, know, this would be... I mean, the history books are written by by the people who win. And obviously, the, the, he was one man against the British Empire. He was not going to win that battle. So obviously, um, the British wrote their own history in, in terms of who... Who he, who he was or who he wasn't, I just got, just you know, we're not going to include him. So that's why up, up until recent, up until now, that uh, the polite Englishman Alan Bennett, who 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 was a better face, uh, and also Dabalok uh, was very embarrassing to the face of Buddhism as well. They want to present themselves to the West as as scholars and thinkers, uh, not you know crazy rebel rousing tramps, you know. So. Mm. Um, so Alan Bennett was was a, a good face. I I don't know his. I can't pronounce unfortunately his or his ordained name. But I'm, do you you know the man I'm talking about? Don't you? I do, but I don't know his name. I one of the things that I wanted to ask you is that uh, sure. Rago and I were discussing a book called The White Lama. Okay. I don't have it at hand, so I don't know the name of the the person. Is American. It, Theo's Theo Bernard is his name. Theo right, Bernard. Right. Yeah. Theo Bernard. Thank you. But one of the things about that book, uh, which is set, I think, in the 1920s, is that um, he had a great deal of difficulty in breaking through the Tibetan Buddhist hierarchies and getting mm -hmm. to lamas and to teachers in Tibet. Uh, it was an enormously difficult task because of the, you know, some of the, the, the um, constrictions, you know, sensible ones about the secrecy of some aspects of Tibetan Buddhism uh, that have, you know, would be misunderstood and have been misunderstood horrendously in the West, particularly Tantra and Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Uh, they didn't want people to just come in and become a, a monk, you know, and this, this white uh, American eventually penetrated through enormous determination and sincerity. Did, um, did he have the same kind of resistance in Myanmar, in, in Burma, at that time, or was it sort of he just walked in and, and decided to do this? Because it seems unlikely to me that he would, just, as much as they probably resented the British, it seems to me that they were at that time still rather naive about what the British would eventually achieve there. So do you know whether he was able to be assimilated by the Buddhist community or whether there was a struggle in there like there was for Theo? I don't, I don't think there was. Um, I, 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 he did... He did make the commitment of, of five years as an apprentice, and obviously passed the test, and 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 the, he was rewarded with with his ordin ordination. So um, one can only guess if there was any in the the, the five years previous, if if he if he 
I, I don't. I honestly can't answer that question. I actually properly. like to ask Raga this because he knows sure. more, a lot more than I do about this. Raga, what, what, when you were in, in in India and subsequent times that you've spoken to people like Jack, we've associated with, with teachers like Jack Cornfield. Uh, was Burma an, easy, an easier place to become a Buddhist as a Westerner than, say, Tibet or Nepal or Bhutan or Japan or no, China? No question. No question that uh, even back then. Uh, you, you could not get, uh, well, of course, with the Chinese after 1959, it was impossible. And it's only in the last, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years that, uh, there has been, uh, tourist permits handed out and so on and so forth. Uh, but when we were there, I mean, all of our friends, uh, Theravadan, uh, friends, who went over? I mean, Jack, of course, studied in in Thailand and uh, forest uh, m with the forest monks, and and uh, both Joseph and Sharon uh, spent time uh, in Burma. Of course, in in that tradition, which goes back to Ubakin, and uh, I think it was far far easier and far more. They were far more accepting of 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 these people. Uh, this particular guy that you're talking about, the White Lama, he was the third person in 1937. He was the third person that the Tibetans allowed into the country, never mind anything else. And he was uh, initiated into tantric practices by, uh, by one of the highest lamas in Tibet. Um, and when this, the interesting thing about this particular story, Ian, um, he... When he finally left Tibet, he went out with 50 mule loads of priceless, essential Buddhist scriptures from government and monastery vaults. They trusted this guy to come back and share the, these teachings with the West. I mean, that's how high they held him. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Evans Wentz, the translator of uh, She Brought Back the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and also uh, an incredible person. Uh, she was the first over there. Um, and what happened is um, he was lost and disappeared. In uh, And this is in 1947. They never found him and they never found any. I think some of this material did get through and is held in some, I'm not sure if it's a museum here in the United States, uh, but uh, it was an incredibly difficult journey um, and uh, certainly nothing like what it sounds like for um, uh, for this particular monk that whose story you're bringing to light uh, being able to get over and uh, become ordained at that time uh, just right late 1800s so um, it, it there obviously was way more uh, acceptance uh, by the Theravadans than certainly by the Tibetans. And, you know, Tibet was very closed. Uh, the whole culture was very closed. Uh, um, and, and it's been said before that the fact that the Chinese did what they, what they have done as pernicious and uh, awful that it's been and the suffering that they have caused uh, is, uh, is enormous. And yet... Uh, What's happened in terms of the teachings being spread around the world has been miraculous, really, and has uh, 
uh, changed uh, culture. Uh, it really uh, allowed us to partake in something which has been so beneficial for Westerners. So, and in this case, uh, here's a whole different light with uh, a, a white Theravadan monk who mm -hmm. uh, who is uh, on a one-man crusade against the British Empire. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, we, we must, uh, we're getting, uh, you know, to the close here of the podcast. Sure. And before we go anywhere, we need you to tell us uh, and, and tell our listeners how we can all help and where this uh, fundraising campaign lies and how you can uh, tune into it, how we can. Just before I mention that, I just I think it's interesting to note that uh, Damaloka was also ordaining new monks from the West as well as new Burmese monks. So he, he reached that kind of stature, ah. which oh. I think is in, just interesting to note. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm very. I'm very bad at the at the self promotion. So I'll uh, just take a breath before. Oh, we're I do good. So. Well, yeah. Dave and I are the best at self promotion. Yeah. I mean, we we go on about uh, getting people to support the podcast through our Amazon link and donations and sure. selling T-shirts and all. And uh, you know, then we go into a twenty minute soliloquy about it and get a lot of mail back. <laughs> what what the shit are you doing? Uh, and then we don't do it. And then we get we hear it from our guru Duncan Trussell who. Uh, what are you talking about? This is important information needs to get out there and you need support to do it. So you need support, Ian, to do, do this. So I just do. do it. Okay. Um, the, 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 um, the campaign is hosted on, on a new uh, Buddhist crowdfund, crowdfunding platform uh, called dana.io, um, D-A-N-A dot I-O. Um, so if you go there, forward slash the Dharma bum, which is the name of, of the movie. Um, it's, I mean, if you're familiar with Indiegogo, if you're familiar with Kickstarter, uh, the page will look very, very familiar. Um, um, it's got all the kind of usual suspects in there um, of T-shirts, posters, stuff, yeah. um, CDs, soundtrack albums. Uh, all uh, the rewards really vary. You can be in the movie, we can, you know, as an animated character, etc. <laughs> um, but the, w one of the cool things I think about it is that even if you just give one euro, you get a copy of the movie. I want everyone to see the movie. So, you know, a lot of crowdfunding campaigns kind of say for the minimum amount, you will say hello to you on Twitter or we'll follow you on Facebook. But no, if you, if you're giving money, obviously means you, you want to support the movie. So everyone, everyone gets a copy. So even for just one euro, which I think is what a dollar 25 cent keeps going That's, down. You're, you're, though, yeah. you're, 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 you're buying, <laughs> you're buying, a, you're buying a copy of the movie. It's a pre-selling kind of thing. And uh, I, I I can't do it without without people like like yourselves, like minded people, like your listeners, to um, to just visit dana.io forward slash the Dharma Bum and please give what you can because I really want I don't want this guy to remain in obscurity. I really I don't think he should be you know available to the chosen few, the academia. I I want people to sit down on our couch and open up Netflix and there he is in the documentary section. I think this story I think he's more relevant today than than he was back then. I think he's he's an inspiring character and I want I really want the entire world to know about him. 
and, and benefit from, from, from his words, from his wisdom, from the Dharma he spread, for his passion, for his conviction to standing up to what he believed in. I mean, he's, he's up there with Martin Luther King. He's up there with Lenny Bruce. He's, he's, he's an important, important figure. And I think we could all learn from his story. So please help me make the movie. And uh, yeah. we can yeah. learn from your, from your promotion style. <laughs> yes, that was terrific. Ian. Yeah, man. Wow. Absolutely, I'm, it's terrific because there. because it's uh, yeah just true to your heart and mm. doing this uh, is obviously would be a fulfilling mission for you, but at the same yeah. time it's an offering and a sharing uh, with uh, with everybody who is uh, uh, interested in consciousness. So you can just put it at the most basic level. Here is somebody who was uh, obviously spent real time imbuing himself uh, in on the path, uh, the Theravadan path in this case, uh, Buddhism, and mm-hmm. to to transform himself from the alcoholic bum that he was to a Dharma yeah. bum. And in that transformation, he not only was working on his own behalf, but he was working, he was thinking of... of uh, he was thinking of everybody. He was thinking of the pe- of, of oppressed people who uh, were at the mercy of the British colonization, which was so widespread at the time. Of course, we're very familiar with what they did in India because we've spent so much time there. And but uh, this happened all through that, although uh, the Asia, and uh, for him to stand up like this, yet still be. Uh, completely connected to the roots of Buddhism for his uh, for his own uh, salvation, uh, shall we say, uh, is an important teaching uh, for for yes. everybody. That you we can care about what's going on in the world, what's going on in uh, culture, politics, uh, and uh, the disparities, which today are huge. And he could easily be speaking to the, the disparity uh, that's going on in the West between the 1% and the rest. And, yeah. and, and so this is an inspiration for people and well worth documenting as you want to do. So we are uh, happy to have you on, aboard here to, uh, to share what you want to do. And, and uh, we really, I, th- I don't think there'll be any question that you'll get the support that you need. Ian. I'm, I'm so grateful that you ha- you guys had me on your show to, to help me spread spread the news of this guy. I'm Absolutely. very, very grateful for yeah, that. I love the, and the Dharma bum, of course, we, Dave and I, uh, well, and you do too, the Dharma bums, you know, from the 50s, yeah. all of our friends, how, yeah, uh, I, Kerouac, I, I, uh, Ginsburg, and... and uh, hopefully I won't get into trouble with the Kerouac estate for, for borrowing uh, the nah, name. No, <laughs> you can't, they can't do it, and they'd be... Well, who knows what they'd be or not be, but I, th- I would I think, say I they'd think have Jack to. Jack would have been quite happy about Yeah, this he would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the, the connectivity there is probably something to mention in, in the movie as well. Sure. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And, and can I just say that mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of people say that they, they discover you through Duncan Trussell. Yeah, but I, I discovered Duncan Thrussell through you guys. So. Oh, there you go. Okay, so, we'll have to you. tell Duncan that. Yeah. <laughs> and Duncan, uh, if you're listening, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell him. All right, this is Mind Rolling Podcast, and again, thank you, Ian, and uh, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>